We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, today, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, about relationships um, and some instruction that Christ ultimately gives us on how we can have uh, depth to those relationships. Those relationships are able to, to overcome, overcome sin, and actually at times even grow stronger through those. Um, and I think it's going to work this week because uh, we are going to be celebrating, many of us will be celebrating Valentine's Day this week. So relationships are going to be on our minds uh, in one way, shape, or another. Uh, have any of you ever read this book, Blank by Malcolm Gladwell? Have you read that one? It's, it's, it's an it's a interesting book. It's a fascinating book. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's kind of fun. It's an easy read. Uh, in this, Malcolm Gladwell talks about um, how our, our brains are able to process information so quickly and on some level determine patterns so quickly that in some cases we can, we can actually predict the outcome that is going to happen, um, even through very short times of exposure. So in cognitive science, they call this, uh, they call this thin slicing. So it, it means that you could walk into a room at times and, and, and maybe take a mental picture of what's happening there, and your brain is so amazing and so fantastic um, that it, it takes in all of that information and immediately starts to, to filter out the noise and hone in on what is most important and even take it a step further, make assumptions about what's happening there and what will come into the future. You didn't know you were so powerful. It's true, actually, right? Our brains process things so quickly, visually, audio, audibly, um, all of those things that we're able to do that. So um, Gladwell's book is fascinating because that's what he's looking at. He's looking at what we call thin slicing, right? Um, um, sometimes we talk about intuition or going with our gut, right? But at times, it's just our brains are able to process things and see patterns. Now, in his book, in one of the chapters, uh, one of the more fascinating chapters um, is talking about some work by a man named John Gottman. So Dr. Gottman um, did a study working with, with couples specifically uh, and trying to predict rates of divorce with, within married couples. Okay? So we've got Valentine's Day coming up, uh, um, but those of you that are not married, this is gonna be applicable to you as well. Um, Gottman talked to all these couples and he researched them and he, he uh, set them up in, in kind of a laboratory setting and, and um, he would have them talk about something in their marriage that was slightly contentious, right? So one of the examples that Gladwell has in his book um, that he had Bill and Sue talk about that they had bought a new dog and their apartment wasn't big enough for this new dog um, and this, this, this kind of interaction, right? There was some friction there for the couple. Well, what Gottman did was, uh, he did this with couple after couple, he put them in a room, and he had sensors everywhere, video cameras everywhere, so he could check heart rate, he could check the amount of perspiration they had. Uh, he, they even had like a, um, they called it like a wiggle-o-meter on the chair. So like, like if you start getting nervous, you start kind of shifting and, right? So uh, they had, he had that, so he did everything he could to kind of objectively be able to see what is happening when these couples are interacting around something that is contentious. Um, what was really amazing was that over time, Dr. Gottman and his entire staff 
became really, really good at predicting outcomes for newlyweds specifically. So he would put newlyweds in there, and after 15 minutes of observation of a newlywed couple, so after only 15 minutes of observation, he was making predictions of whether they would be married in 15 years, 90% correct, right? So whether or not they were still going to be together in 15 years, his rate of, of, um, of, of guessing whether they would be was over 90% correct. Now, how did he do it? Well, all these cameras, he became adept at what he was doing, but all these cameras, all this documentation, everything, um, he became very attuned to certain things that were happening within this relationship. Um, some things, many things actually, that could not necessarily be seen. So he would have multiple couples in there, and one couple uh, maybe had been talking about something contentious and just yelling and screaming at each other, right? Well, another couple talking about something contentious, and, and you'd hardly know, right? It was the most civil conversation that you've ever seen. But what Gottman was able to do was he was able to look beneath the physical actions of how the couples were acting and, and get a sense of their inner emotions and inner intentions. Over time, uh, he kind of boiled these down to four different things. He calls them the four horsemen uh, of emotions or, or intentions that destroy relationships specifically within, uh, within husbands and wives. Here's what they are. These are the four horsemen of destructive things within those relationships. Defensiveness, oftentimes that's a yes but, right? Yes, but, right? So you, you pretend as though you are understanding your partner, but you really want to tell them that they're wrong. <laughs> so, right? Stonewalling, so that would just be, I just got no interest. I don't want to do this. I don't want to fight. Criticism, so actively kind of coming back at somebody over and over and over again. And the last one is contempt. These are the four horsemen. He said are the four biggest, the four most detrimental attitudes within a relationship that helped him make predictions that were more than 90% correct on whether couples were together. Now, out of those four, which one do you think was number one? Which one do you think out of those four? So Gottman had uh, one of the four, he said, is, is more dangerous than the other three. He said all four of them are bad, but one of them's more. Which one do you think it is? Criticism I heard was stonewalling. Yeah. Um, the, the truth is, it's, it's the last one. It's contempt. Yeah, it's contempt, right? And actually, the, he's got a lot of interesting study because um, he also found uh, general patterns um, that were different between men and women. So uh, each of us, as men and women, um, tend to do one of these more or less than the other, right? So for instance, um, um, uh, our potential women are upset. He said they will tend towards criticism. Um, men, oftentimes, when they're contentious or upset, they will go towards stonewalling. So a disproportionate will react kind of in that way. So these are just general groupings that you would see. But the, the one up there that was, that was equal among men and women and absolutely disastrous to a relationship was contempt. And he said, when I saw it, 
when I see it, when I feel it from that couple, they're in trouble. What do you think? I think it makes a little bit of sense, and we're going to dig into it here today, because on some level, that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks to us about anger, ultimately connecting that even murder. He's talking about contempt, right? a dismissiveness, a, a setting aside, and it's absolutely destructive to relationships. Now, as I mentioned, um, if you're not married, this applies to you as well. And in fact, it applies to almost every aspect of our world. So think about in your relationships, how detrimental, how deadly contempt can be, right? Within your families, with loved ones. When it gets to the point where family members show contempt to one another, you are not in a good place. Right? Not in a good place. Uh, within your friendships, if you've ever had friendships that you thought uh, were good or you thought had depth and they moved to a place where there was contempt shown there, oftentimes I think within friendships we don't even wait to, for it to get to that point. <laughs> we just, we leave. The friendship dies. It, it, it ends. Right? But you've seen it even broader, I think, within your world. Um, I think there are times when when we are contemptuous of our school, of the place where you work, and the people around you, and at times, even of your own church. All of those are along the same line, the same vein of that most deadly of attitudes, which is contempt. Today, we want to dig into that. If we want healthy relationships, in marriages, in friendships, in families, in our workplace, in our churches. I think on some level we have to deal with that idea, contempt. How do we get there? How do we, how do we work through it? And ultimately, how does God help us move beyond it as believers? So Jesus is going to help us do that here today. Okay, uh, let's see. So our... Our, uh, um, our points for today, oh, I forgot Dr. Gottman's uh, quote. He says this, uh, even within the four horsemen, in fact, there's one emotion that he considers the most important of all, contempt. If Gottman observes one or both partners in a marriage showing contempt toward the other, he considers it the single most important sign that the marriage is in trouble. So, um, it's deadly, right? So. Okay, uh, here's where we're going to be headed today. So the, for those of you that uh, like to know where we're headed, uh, we're going to have three points, and none of these make any sense to you, uh, but it at least gives you a sense of where we're headed. Uh, they make sense to me, and hopefully they'll make sense to you at the end. Um, but it's all directional today. These are directional points. Uh, we want to first consider consider a, a vertical. I know um, that we're going to talk about not moving away, uh, but actually moving towards as we, as we consider our relationships in our world. And, and even before we get to that, we're going to talk just a little bit about the setting of, of what's taking place in our text. So, so if you'd like to follow along, you are welcome to. Uh, the, the text obviously is in your bulletin. You also see it on the screen behind me here. Um, verse 20 just says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So now there's a couple of there's a couple concepts that are being brought back to us uh, at this point in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So now remember, we're, 
we're on Sermon 3 of this, and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was spoken um, at a very specific time to very specific people. So primarily, this is directed to his disciples, to those that, that believe in him as, the, as their Savior. Okay? So in some sense, this is directed to you, right? Those of us that know who Christ is, uh, um, and, and understand what he had come to do, and therefore asking, now how do we live our lives in glory to our God above? And that's, that's important to remember as Christ introduces these things once again, that concept of righteousness versus the kingdom of God. Because um, those disciples of his, that they were going to go out into the world, generally when they saw examples of righteousness, the Israelite community would say, well, the best examples of righteousness clearly are Pharisees and Sadducees. Clearly the most righteous people in our society are the religious leaders. They're the ones that wear the right things and, and are in God's word, and they're the ones that are telling us what to do, what to believe, what to, to do in order to be righteous. So if anyone in our society is righteous, is right living, clearly it's the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, this is where Jesus Jesus speaks something completely different. So he talks about righteousness, not the outward robes and gowns and outward actions that the Pharisees and Sadducees do, but he drills right down to the heart, to the motivation, the why we do the things we do. And later in Matthew and in the Gospels, Jesus has some pretty harsh words for the Pharisees. Um, he calls them a brood of vipers, which just means like you're a pit of snakes. That's not a compliment. So, unless you like snakes, it's still not a compliment. Right? Uh, and he calls them whitewashed tombs, which is maybe an even better one, um, where, where it's, a, it's a grave site that looks nice and shiny on the outside, but inside, what does it hold? It holds death. Right? So that's what Jesus is comparing here for his disciples and for us. He's talking about um, um, what, what can we do to be righteous? And this is where it fragments just a little bit in our text. Uh, Martin Luther often talked about righteousness in two different ways. Um, he would call it two kinds of righteousness. Um, the first is vertical, right? So you are right before God, not because of the things you do, but because of the things Jesus did on your behalf. This is what we would call vertical righteousness. You are declared not guilty, justified. You are forgiven, not because of what you do this way, but because of what was done this way by Christ on your behalf. So two kinds of righteousness. The first is yours as a gift. You cannot earn it. Um, you're not such wonderful people. I'm not such a wonderful person. It's not based on what we do or our bloodlines. It's purely a gift by Christ. That's that first kind of righteousness. But today, in our text, Jesus now moves us into what we call that second kind of righteousness. So when we know that, then how do we seek to live our lives in right ways, in ways that honor God and love the people around us. And so that's what Jesus is talking about and talking to us about here today. It's that second kind of righteousness. How do we live our lives? How do we, how do we manage our relationships in ways that give God glory and honor and reflect the righteousness we have from Him? Okay? okay. So that's the, the setting of our text here today. That's where we're at. Second kind of righteousness. So let's jump into uh, the first or next few verses of our text says this, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Okay. So now what is Jesus, what is he bringing to mind for his disciples and even on some level for us? It's the Ten Commandments, actually. I don't want to, I don't want to quiz you, but do you know which commandment this is? It's the fifth. It's the fifth you shall not murder, right? So this is Jesus is saying, listen, this is a and this is outside of Christianity, right? Murder uh, universally is said, this is wrong. This is morally wrong. Even within nations that, that are not Christian or, or unbelieving, secular, would say murder is wrong. This is morally outside the bounds of what we should be doing. So Jesus references this fifth commandment and says, uh, you shall not murder. But what's fascinating is he takes it a step further. So not just physical act of killing someone, right? which is murder. He takes it a step deeper, and he says, even anger is murder in your heart. And so now here is where he goes to further the motivation. Because no one ever killed somebody without being angry, and it leading to hatred, and then it leading to action. And so, in some sense, Jesus goes upstream and into our hearts and says, we have to consider our own motivations and thoughts within us. Right? So he points us specifically uh, to that concept of anger. Now, uh, the text here is rather, rather interesting. So uh, this is where we probably need a little, a little clarity on when we talk about anger. Um, and it actually was a little bit, it's a little bit harder when you're teaching the little guys. They know what anger is. Um, and they know that in general it's wrong. But, but it's hard to grasp, like, okay, why is it wrong? And they knew, they knew exactly when it became wrong was when you acted on. Right? When you hit somebody, you're not supposed to do that. When you're aggressive, you're not supposed to do that. So they, they all do that. But uh, when we start just wrestling with that concept of anger, I think it's a little bit harder. And at times it is for us as well, because anger is an emotion. Right? There are times when you, you get angry, like when it just it just happens. Like this is an emotion that comes out of you. Um, and, 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 and so part of that is almost uncontrolled within us. There isn't one of us sitting here that, that hasn't become angry, right? Maybe this morning, right? Because anger is an emotion. But what's fascinating here, what Jesus is talking about, and what that word has a little greater depth to it, um, it's this picture of being, being filled up with poison, okay? So not necessarily, I mean, I think that can begin, right? The, the flash of anger, the emotion can begin. Um, but if you let it move to a place where it continually drip, 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 and fills you up with poison, and you get angrier and angrier and angrier, and more and more resentful, and more and more animosity, now we understand where it's moving to. And ultimately, that's what Jesus is talking about. And, and the reason why this is so detrimental to a relationship um, is because it takes place over time. If it was just the emotion of anger, I think all of us could probably understand that on some level because we get angry, we get joyous, we get all these type of things. But when Jesus talks about anger, it's the, it's the slowly being filled with poison within your own heart. And the, the real insidious thing about it is um, against somebody else. So it increasingly poisons your relationship and your view of someone else. And so that's what Jesus is getting at here when he talks about anger. He says it's not just the action, and in fact, uh, um, the emotion maybe comes, but it's allowing yourself 
being filled up with that poison kind of slowly over time, right? Um, that level of anger, ultimately, is going to lead to, to action. Let me back up. It may lead to action, but it will, it will lead towards you acting in certain ways towards someone else. If you allow that drip, drip, drip of poison anger to fill you up. And that's what Jesus talks about in the next couple verses here. So says this. Um, so he's kind of doubling down on what he's talking about. He talks about anger. says, I'm going I'm to make this point, drive this point even deeper uh, and more of one for you. He says this. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of God. So is Jesus, is Jesus being melodramatic? Now you don't know what to answer because your pastor asked you. Like, well, I don't think Jesus is melodramatic. I'm supposed to say no, but but it's like so. Um, Jesus, so he, he talks about anger. He talks about murder, and then he like doubles down on it. He says, you know what? Even if even if you say raka or you call someone a fool, you're going to be taken to court, or you're in the danger of fires of hell. Right? We're like, holy cow, Jesus! Like this is like. Okay, so, but that should cause us to step back and say, okay, well, what is he talking, like, why would he be talking in this way if it was insignificant? And the answer is, it's not insignificant. It is the drip, drip, drip of poison, of anger that we allow to poison the relationships around us. And he drives that home by using two different words here. Uh, the first one, raka. The second one, uh, the Greek word there for you fool. Um, and um, you were hoping you were going to learn a little Aramaic today. You're in luck. So, Raka, uh, as best, now this is a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a linguistic um, anomaly or question, so this isn't, um, we're not exactly sure what Raka, the root word of Raka, um, it is Aramaic, but we're not exactly sure what it is drawn from. Um, some have said that it just, it, it's a dismissive word, as in, uh, if you said Raka to somebody, that you're a nobody, right? That some have said that it's even from the, the root word of, of empty. Like, you, like you're, no, you're nothing. You're nothing. Right? That's that idea of Raka. Others have said that Raka was actually an action. Um, so what, I don't know, is, is it, a, I don't know if it's offensive, like, but, um, um, like, what is, is like doing that with your, is that, a, that's like, right, Italians do that, that kind of thing? I don't know, actually, I probably just, sore with my hand, but I don't know. Um, apologies if I did, but, but then some will say that that Raka was that. It was like a, a, a guttural utterance. It was like maybe even an action, like, you know, like um, sucking your teeth, like, you know, almost like a dismissive thing, right? So if you did that to somebody, it was, it was not good. You don't want people doing that to you. Um, the second one here, the, the translation for you fool, you know this one. This is actually Greek. Uh, from the Greek word moros, and that is the base word for the word moron. You ever call somebody a moron? That's what you call them, right? You call them you fool, right? So that's from the Greek word moros. So Jesus uses both of those today, and, and both of these 
have this underlying, like, kind of base level of that concept of contempt. Because what are you doing if you said Rocco or you fool? If you call someone a moron or an idiot, what are you hoping that they feel? Sad, dismissed, and, and if you think it through, on some level, you're hoping that they believe it. If you call someone a moron or an idiot, you're hoping that they believe it, right? So this is no small thing when, when we call someone that, right? And this, the fascinating thing about both these words is that there is an underlying undercurrent of contempt that is there. And so like off the bat, like, man, Jesus is being really melodramatic, but the truth is he isn't. These are contemptuous words. You call someone an idiot or a moron or a nobody or you're not even worth my time. Right? Think of think of what you're doing in that regard. This is a separation. Now think of that in connection to some of your, your deepest relationships with family, with friends, with a spouse, right? With brothers and sisters at a church or within your workplace. And that'll happen, right? You think of your own workplace. There are times when you hear people talk about other people and call them idiots or a fool, right? Morons. That's not a good place to be, right? It's not a good place to be um, because it, it is communicating contempt. And what it does, it is separating. And this is probably the biggest thing here. It is creating relational separation. So when husbands and wives get to that point of showing contempt, they're at the very precipice of saying, I don't even care about you enough to talk about it. There's separation. I'm contemptuous of you in everything that you do. Now, that's why it's so detrimental, I think, to our relationships. And I think you know it, and you've probably felt it at times. So um, I think it's this, this um, maybe the picture of, of climbing a hill or a mountain, right? Um, when you've got a new friendship, when you've got uh, uh, when, when you're newlyweds, maybe when you just started dating, um, you're climbing up the hill, and like everything's awesome. Like it, like it's so cute that he chews with his mouth. I mean, it's, just, it's so cute, and like you know, he, he doesn't put the toilet seat down. But, ah, it's, you know, it's just it's not. A, this is such a minor thing. This is no big deal, right? And. Uh, um, um, she always wants wants everything, you know, all the dishes put away and cleaned and things like that. And um, yeah, I mean, she's just a little bit neat, but that's not. I mean, what's? I mean, I'm just trying to pitch in. I'm trying to help out, right? So, so when you're you're up, in some sense, you're climbing this mountain, and this is the opposite of contempt, by the way. This is the this is a little bit of fairy dust, right? This is you love each other, right? You're climbing that hill, and everything looks good, right? Even things that are legitimately not so great, you will. You will, you will color as good. But what happens at times, inevitably, um, when we get to the top and we start the path back down the backside. Now it's amazing how quickly everything changes. Now, nothing that he does, nothing that she says, uh, um, is taken in the best possible way. Even objectively good things are taken as, well, he's just trying to manipulate or she's just trying to control. So we feel that. When, when you're on the way up, everything looks good. When you're on the way down, almost nothing looks good. Have you ever felt that at work, in your workplace, in your school? I bet you have. I bet you, you look to move on, <laughs> right? 
when, when almost nothing at work is good anymore and the coworkers around you you can't stand, um, you're on the way down. And that would be the downside, backside, and is most commonly expressed in forms of contempt. I just want nothing to do with you. I want total separation. So that is where Jesus takes us when he talks about anger. He talks about contempt. The truth is, we have to call it what it is. Actually, the Apostle Paul knew exactly what it was. Whether it was murder or anger, the Apostle Paul knew this. The only difference from someone that is angry versus a mass murderer is quantity, not quality. Okay? The only difference is quantity, not quality. Right? In God's eyes, sin is sin. Jesus is saying it here, isn't he? Murder and anger. Both sins in God's eyes. The only difference is that someone has drawn the line in a different place than you've drawn the line. Okay? The only difference is quantity, not quality. Here's how Paul knew that. First Timothy says this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus, or Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The Apostle Paul is arguably the greatest Christian missionary that the world's ever had. If we're talking about a second kind of righteousness, who would be righteous? People would say, this has got to be Paul. And so is Paul just being melodramatic? No. He can legitimately say, of whom I am the worst, because he knew that it was about quality, not quantity. He knew that he was a sinner, and that in the eyes of a perfect, righteous God, it did not matter how how much quantity there was, just the quality of it. And so he could rightfully say, of whom I am the worst. Okay. This has been a little bit of doom and gloom so far. What pulls us back? What pulls your relationships back from a contemptuous precipice and a death spiral? What pulls us as believers back from that same sinful death spiral? Paul knew the answer to that as well, because in Romans 5.8, he says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for you. Okay? Uh, Dr. Gottman's research, like, um, it's a difficult one, because it's just like, man, 90%, um, you know, like, what hope is there for, for us as, as couples, right? Or my relationships. And some of you might have been sitting here thinking, um, I have friendships, I have a marriage, I have a workplace where I see contempt and I have um, displayed contempt. Is there any hope for me or for us or for that relationship? The answer is absolutely there is. See, Dr. Gottman's research um, presumed that once, that, that once this emotion or this action was put in place, that nothing was going to come that would change that behavior. So he's assuming the behavior will stay constant for the life of that marriage, and before 15 years is up, it's done. The truth is, can change, we have changed, most importantly, we've changed in Christ. And so, marriages that are contemptuous, friendships that are contemptuous, even workplaces that are contemptuous, we can change those. We can certainly change that within our own hearts, and we do so by honestly addressing it like Paul did, saying, I know greater 
or less than anyone around me. There isn't a separation of morons and idiots and me as a smart person. It, we are all morons and idiots in that sense. We are all sinners, Paul would say. But the change comes in knowing that Christ has died for all, including you. Then we have the opportunity to build off of that and to actually um, cohesively, constructively build relationships that are able to, um, to recognize sin, understand sin, address it, grow from it, and move beyond it. And that's what he gets to in our next few texts here. Uh, we increasingly are able to see the people around us through the view of the cross rather than backside of the contemptuous mountain. Jesus says this, gives us some practical ways, things, practical applications within our relationships. Jesus says, first go and be reconciled to them. So talking about that separance, right? Separation, right? Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. So four points that we want to look at here. Uh, the first thing is when Jesus is talking about this, he's talking about um, sin, not preference. Now, here's what we like to do at, um, as human beings. Um, we like to confront and, and kind of beat people up far more often over preference than over sin. So we, we elevate our own personal preference and are willing to like throw down over that. But when it comes to our own sin, you know what we do? We minimize it. We're just human, right? We just, we just make innocent mistakes. So, from a Christian perspective, we, that's opposite. Preferences can change, right? We can have preferences, and you all have different preferences, but that is vastly different than sin. And so as Christians, we can say we are going to put preferences in their place, but we are also going to put sin in its place and just understand just how deadly it is. We tend to do the opposite, okay? Jesus says sin is sin, and it should be addressed. Ask for forgiveness or forgiven. He says three specific things. He says, number one, um, go, right? So he calls on us to be the initiator. He didn't first say, like, try to determine who is right or who is wrong. He just says, go. He's making the assumption that, that, um, that, that something has happened, that we are sinful, and I think it's a pretty good assumption. So as believers, he's saying, be the initiator of reconciliation. Go, actually do it. Don't just sit back and, in your office and wait for that person to come in and just grovel them to apologize on their knees. Go, right? Be the initiator in this, in your relationships, right? The second one is don't let things fester. Don't just let them sit. So there's a timeliness to this. Talk about that drip, drip, drip of poison. Jesus says, address it. Don't let it become so huge that it separates and it destroys marriages and families and workplaces. He says, actually, Address it. Don't let things fester. And if at all possible, do it actually face-to-face. -face, right? Talk to someone. Right? You can't do that. Actually, call them on the phone. The, your phones work for voices, not just text, too. Right? So actually maybe hear their voice. Right? But, but it, 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 at all possible, we try to do this one-on-one -on -one and face-to-face. -face, right? To be able to talk through those I think these are practical examples of how we can cut off, we can cut short that drip of poison and change and turn around this uh, contemptuous cycle that can lead to split marriages, friendships, families, 
workplaces and even places where you go to school. Okay. What will that look like? Well, guess what? For each and every one of you, it's going to look a little bit different. World War II, um, Morse code was being used by Nazi Germany uh, to communicate their battle plans everywhere. And, um, and we, we knew how to intercept the Morse code. Do any of you know how to read Morse code? Some of you maybe, yeah, yeah okay. So yeah, so uh, uh, um, um, beeps and long, long pauses, right? So um, World War II, we were able to intercept those, but, um, but trying to determine exactly what the Germans were saying was, so the content of it was super, super hard. But here's what happened, and it was interesting enough, it was predominantly women. They, they said, okay, you're gonna intercept these things, and these women said, well, we're intercepting them, we're, we're, we're getting all this Morse code, and we're, we're translating it, but we don't know exactly what, what they're saying or what they're not. But, but here's two things that they really quickly realized, um, that every Morse code operator has what they call a fist. So, so when, you, when each and every one of you hit that button and then hold that button, each of you are gonna do it slightly different than the person next to you. And that these women, um, with enough time, could know exactly who was typing out the Morse code. In fact, they got to the point where they would assign names to them. They called like, this is Hans, um, this, this is Carl, uh, this is Charlie. And they could tell, they didn't know the content of what was being said, but just by how they were saying it, they knew exactly who was at the Morse code machine on that day. So, say, well, how useful is that? Well, number one, now you know who's making that communication. You know how long their shifts are. You know when they get go to work, when they get off of work. Secondarily, you also know when they move and when they get transferred. So when Hans, who was typing out Morris code from Italy and had a nine to five, all of a sudden his same fist is recognized and it's happening in uh, um, Northern Austria. Now you know something happened. You know that Hans's troop generally must have gotten moved. Why would he have gotten moved? Right, so now, um, without knowing any of the content of that, just the pattern of how they communicated gave insight into who they were, what the enemy was doing, and how they were moving around. Um, I think that's a pretty good illustration for us as well when we talk about um, the choices we make in our daily living. How we choose to treat the people around us over time gives a very clear picture of who we are and what we value. It communicates something. Uh, Samuel Morris, this is the very first Morris code that was ever typed out. Um, um, he wanted to communicate, maybe you don't know the story of Samuel Morris, but specifically what happened, the reason he invented Morris code was because his wife died and he didn't find out about it for a week and a half, and he never was able to get back to her funeral or to put her in the grave. And he said, I can't, this, there has to be a, more, a better way to communicate. So he created more scope. You can't see it, you maybe could read it, but the very first Morse code uh, that was ever sent was actually Numbers 23, verse 23. See what God is done. It's a fascinating insight into what we communicate in our relationships and in our Christian life. The things you say, the way you act, the choices you make, say something not only about you, but also about your Lord above. 
Jesus is talking about righteous living. These are the, the markers of what it means to have a heart that is changed in Christ. How you treat the people around you and in your relationships um, is a marker of how your heart has been changed by Christ. As we do that, let us pray that our beat, our actions, our words speak clearly, not only about who we are, most importantly, about who Christ was on our behalf. That we are forgiven, we are loved, and that contempt can be left aside. Amen.